Hello and welcome to the WAMDA podcast. My name is Triska Hamid and I'm the editor at WAMDA. This month, I spoke with Nadir Sabri, a strategist, innovator and entrepreneur in NASA space technology. He's also the author of Ready, Set, Growth Hack, a beginner's guide to growth hacking success, which he describes as a blueprint for organizations to achieve 10x growth. So what exactly is growth hacking and what was the NASA space technology that Nadir worked on? Hi, Nadir. Welcome to the WAMDA podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you for hosting me. Let's start from the very beginning. Um, when was your first venture? What, what's your background? Sure. So I, I started as an entrepreneur in the uh, mid-90s. And so the first thing that I ever built, and I built, a, I built a few companies before that, but little tiny companies. But my first kind of big thing was I built one of the world's first internet service providers. Uh, which was uh, Canada Online, competing with AOL, uh, America Online. Um, initially, it wasn't called Canada Online. It was known as Calgary Online, which was the city that I'm from. And since we own COL, it was very easy for us to transfer the name to Canada Online while we were going public uh, several years later. So we started in approximately 1994, 1995, and we'd gone, we were going public in 1999 while, while during the IPO process we got acquired. Um, it was an excellent time for us because it was right before the dot bomb had kind of kicked in and anything to do with tech was basically considered to be very toxic at that time. And this, this was when the internet was still dial up, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm talking like super early on. So in 1994, when we first started out, it was like, there was only like a, a handful of domains registered ever. Uh, we were working with, uh, was it network solutions. That was like the only place to get a domain. And I remember it was like, I think $70 or to $120 per domain. Nobody knew what a domain was. And it was kind of like those who were ahead of the curve, like ourselves were buying up domains of uh, popular brands and companies at that time, because the law wasn't very, um, well, they didn't, they didn't, I don't know, there was no precedence for it at that time. Let's put it like that. Um, so some of that worked out for us. How did you have the foresight to look into this space? I mean, the internet, you know, the, I imagine the penetration was was tiny back then. How did you know that this was the right path for you? Well, okay, so what happened prior to it is I actually had a web development company <laughs> right before that. And it, it sounds really weird because in those days, a, a website was just like a gray background with text and maybe a couple of images maximum because of the dial-up speed. So I had successfully helped educate and migrate a, a few businesses online and, and made some good money doing it. And so very shortly later, I'd met my two co-founders and at that time, uh, we knew that the what was about to come was a massive explosion. And it was all for me personally was inspired by an article actually that was written and it had a stat. So remember, this is like in 1994, 1995, they said by the year 2000, the internet will have more people than the most populated country in the world. So in today's terms, you'd be like, yeah, walk in the park. 1994, where nobody knew what internet was, you, you knew that there was some massive wave that's about to come. So as we built this internet service provider, I mean, I had a laboratory, a digital laboratory sitting at my fingertips. So we would look at like, what would be data possibilities? What would be audio possibilities? What would be visual possibilities? What would be the combinations of? And we actually set up our own voice over IP uh, tech uh, very early on. So it wasn't an app or a service like you would see today. It was roughly an experiment that we were running with, uh, with a team in the Netherlands at that time. 
and it was basically a, a free phone call. Uh, and we had these orange booth, phone booths that were uh, uh, based in the Netherlands. And you can call Canada and, and vice versa. So it was a, within a closed network, but it was actually working. And it was a way that we experimented to see how far can digital tech really go. And yeah, it was, um, it was, it was good times. And, and what happened after you exited that company? So after I exited that, uh, I started several tech companies. So, so I don't know if you're familiar, but Canada is kind of like the secret weapon of Silicon Valley, like the back end of the whole tech sector. So in those days, that wasn't really known unless you were super deep in the sector because there was always this uh, interlinkage of people moving from Canada to the Valley, Valley into Canada. And so the people in the Valley knew that there was this very unique set of skills sitting up north, very close by, very homogenous in nature, speaking the same kind of accent, same language, um, you know, different currency, slightly different cultural values, but so close that it was uh, it was kind of like a match made in heaven. So when you step back, uh, you know, 30, 40 years later, that's why you see Uber was actually founded in Canada. You'll find like Flash was founded, you know, in the same city I was from. Uh, the Thompson chip, which is was bought out by Intel for IoT devices, come from from where where I'm from as well. So what happens is like you just kind of take a look back, and today you start to see the visibility of, of the Canadian tech sector. So you'll find a lot of the major social media companies like like um, you know Hootsuite and Unbounce and and uh, Shopify are all now based in Canada. So the primary driver behind it was that. The technical skills in Canada were very strong, but the venture capital environment wasn't uh, up to speed. So if we wanted to scale and get money, we had to go south where the language was exactly that. Right. So because of that, I ended up building several tech companies. One of the most significant ones I built was uh, a first generation AI company, and it was targeting the venture capital industry itself. Actually, that was the first application we were using. So I raised eight million for that and put a million on my own. But we burned the money in about nine months and we weren't able to raise the next round because at that time, fundraising was very difficult. This was at the time when tech was considered super toxic. So so, yeah, I had a lot of um, kind of ups and downs with different uh, tech companies at that time. Uh, and then shortly after that, I was I, I took a very strange route, a, a completely different. Uh, well, that com well, it's a pivot, but it's still linked to a lot of the things that I do. Uh, and had proven to be very useful to me in the future. Um, I was bought, brought into the lobbying industry in, in Washington, D.C. to help represent the tech industry. So it wasn't really my thing to begin with because I wasn't very interested in public policy or government or the implications of. I was just interested in building tech companies and using innovation to change the world. That's all I was really interested in. Um, but that, that proved to introduce a new whole new dimension to who I am and, and how I work and how I understood um, the world works because I've had the opportunity to be on many sides of the equation. Um, so that was kind of how I ended up in this region, by the way, uh, setting up their offices almost 19, 20 years ago. And then as I came here, uh, I started taking on more kind of a public policy um, uh, role. So I was the chief strategist of the economic department, setting up economic policy for the region. Again, kind of visionary, innovative, paving the way uh, for the future future industries to emerge uh, just from a completely different angle. Um, and then shortly after that, I helped f found the Foreign Investment Office for the government purely because at that time, this was 2008, um, we knew that if we wanted uh, Dubai specifically to, to grow, we had to basically enhance the foreign direct investment environment uh, to enable uh, the future companies that were to set up here, and not just tech companies, but across the board um, to attract them into the Emirate of Dubai. So, yeah, and then, then I went uh, into strategy consulting. So as I've done you know, strategy for a number of years, 
you know, one of the top strategy firms in the world had headhunted me as head of innovation and thought leadership, which was a pretty awesome role. But at the end of that, I got sick and tired of working for other people. <laughs> uh, I, it had nothing to do with the firm. It had everything to do with kind of the route that I'd been taking. And then that's when I went back to what gets me most excited. And I founded two companies. Uh, one was another strategy firm, uh, which was McGill Consulting Group uh, with two partners from McGill University and then Times Five. And Times Five was like the most exciting one because it was a whole new tech that was using space technology. And um, it's a whole the whole thing is an accidental story. So Times Five is a prayer mat, a new type of prayer mat for Muslims. Tell, tell us about the story of how it came to be. Sure. So uh, several years before I had launched it, so we did about four to five years of R&D. Uh, that's how long it took us to actually invent that product. And I had recognized that there was a massive problem. And that problem was helping people who want to pray or meditate. And there was no solution for them uh, because of pain and posture problems and blood circulation issues. And we found a direct link between that and lifestyle diseases, which sounds very awkward from the outset. Um, but as we did the research, we found direct links between that and saw that there was a massive opportunity because nobody was solving this problem. So as I step back, I, I discovered that I'm disrupting a 1,400-year-old industry. <laughs> let's, let's go back. So, so the way Muslims pray, they kind of, it's, it's a full-body experience, let's put it that way. It's something that's called Arab knees, even though it's not a medical condition. The, it's known as Arab knees because of the kind of the impact of, of hitting the knees on the floor. Oh, yeah, yeah. So when, when, okay, so this is what's really cool about what we were doing. So... We went out to research, not just about Muslim prayer, but spirituality in general. And we discovered across many spiritual platforms. So regardless of belief system, you'll find that kneeling is a fundamental uh, posture and, and it has a fundamental meaning in, in spirituality, regardless of what belief system or even if you're doing it purely as meditation. So it does what's called a 130 to 140 flexion, which isn't a normal uh, flexion that would be part of your normal body physiology. So there's a few things that, that would happen. Uh, one is it'd be a sudden shock to the system because the system would be like, I, I usually don't go this way. I can, but I haven't in a while. So uh, there's going to be a bit of pain adjusting. On the other part is the ergonomics around you. So the primary problem wasn't really the knee. This was the most interesting discovery. It was the ergonomics that take place in your day-to-day -day, um, lifestyle, which is where the real problem was. So we, we found that 92% of all products that you use are not ergonomically designed for your physical health. So that's everything from your chair to uh, things we take for granted. I mean, things that, we, okay, so the chair we may be more aware of, but you know, sitting in a lobby, getting in the car, uh, getting into an elevator, um, getting, you know, uh, walk around the park. I mean, there's all these little tiny things that people don't consider. Believe it or not, one of the most ergonomically well-engineered products that we looked at was the iPhone, right? The initial iPhone. And it was built on a philosophy that the thumb should be able to cover 80 to 90% of the screen with a single swipe. Initially, that obviously has gone in a completely different direction today. But we found that fascinating because they had studied and understood the physiology, so the, the physical and, and, and mental connection in order to get an outcome. 
which is the same thing that we were doing. It just wasn't a mobile phone. Okay, so what what was so special about the, this prayer mat? What was the technology? How was it developed? So we use um, space materials that were originally used in astronaut suits. Okay, so this type of poly, polyurethane, and it's an all, we use kind of a derivative of it, uh, was it has an ability to absorb, uh, hug, and 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 stop resistance. So stop resistance means like this. So. A spacesuit is just floating in space, right? So there's not much resistance. But if if I put this material against a surface, the problem where you get pain, for example, like let's say you're praying on a normal prayer mat, you touch the ground, the resistance in the floor, like what we call the resistance at that point, is what's creating the pain. So if we're able to uh, counter the resistance, uh, hug and then absorb, we can actually uh, remove the pain, uh, not entirely in all cases, but we can remove the pain um, and then we can allow blood flow to take place. When blood flow can take place, it reduces the pain because you're able to have a healthier posture. So that's exactly, I mean, what it did. And then we had um, like an anti-slip uh, thing at the bottom so many people who use any of these kind of even till today um they just slip and slide all over the place and there are injuries <laughs> believe it or not that are quite free you don't think about it but you know we we went that deep that we have an anti-slip and then we had two types of nasa technology one was obviously the the material itself but the other one which um is well known in the science world but not so much in the consumer world or, or the general public is, is a technology called chronogenics and chronogenics is 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 a, a tech that we invented uh, that essentially uh, removes and reduces uh, antimicrobials in a nanofiber. So we turn it into a material with nanofiber, and it's able to reduce up to 99.7% of antimicrobials. So initially, people were like, well, why would you put that on a mat, right? Well, it's because we knew that many respiratory diseases at that time were coming from um, mats, right? We, they would leave them in the dust. They were not cleaning them because they were not. Some of them were not cleanable, and so people would get respiratory problems, and they wouldn't recognize that they were getting asthma or light forms of other respiratory problems because of the actual uh, mat that they're using to pray or meditate on. So when we were able to solve that, uh, it not also do we help solve another problem, but that tech actually uh, NASA took from us and uses, used it on the International Space Station. I don't know if they still use it today uh, because it had a massive application in, 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 in helping people keep hygienically clean. Wow. So how did you get your hands on, on this technology? One of them you said was already an, a NASA piece of tech. Um, this one you guys adapted. So did you have a relationship with them? Did you have engineers from NASA? How, how does that work? So technically, um, we didn't actually just we didn't just take it off the shelf and use it. What happened was that um, we we would obviously we would obviously take it and then we would reinvent it. Meaning it didn't exactly solve the problem that we wanted, so we would have to make derivatives and adjustments. So I had to build roughly throughout the life of the development process. We built 139 prototypes. Uh, it cost us obviously a lot of money. Um, and you say, technically, when I tell people we failed 139 times before we ever got it right. And that's how that's the intensity uh, of, of kind of effort that would be required. So the, the whole story started when when I saw this problem and I started the R&D myself, I'd reached out to a friend of mine, an old friend of mine. He's, he's a former NASA scientist. And so he understands um, high performance materials very well. And so that's where the conversation started. And so he got really excited about the inspirational side of the story, actually, not the science. And the science was kind of secondary. So he was helping me more on a voluntary basis. He actually had no stake in our company. Um, it was just pure just R&D at that time. And then as he was working with me, uh, we were drawing on different resources. And then he kind of got flagged. And when he got flagged, he was asked, like, what the hell are you doing? What are you working on? 
uh, and he said like openly, I mean, there's no conflict of interest, but um, you know, according to his, his um, some there was some sensitivity there, so we had to uh, make some adjustments to our relationship, and so he had to discontinue his his efforts with me. Um, but I continued because I had already a lot of it in place, and so they took an interest um, from the very beginning to understand like what is it exactly that's going on, and as they started to learn more and the relationship started to develop, uh, they told me. Are you aware that you you can become a NASA space certified company? And I didn't know what that meant. I had no idea well, how that works. They said, well, you, you've successfully taken space technology and you're spinning off and you have a potential spin in. Spin in is the chronogenics that I'm talking about and the spin off is the materials. Uh, so the relationship built from there in 2014, they inaugurated me as the 43rd person in history to ever be certified. It was pretty cool because I got into a really interesting community. I mean, so so technically, I mean, NASA is like the most advanced tech agency on the planet. Um, they see the world very differently. And to my surprise, as a, as a life learning for myself, the people who were most open to spirituality were the people who were closest and deepest in science. They weren't your, um, you know, I mean, it was just, it just, I don't know how to explain it <laughs> better than that. And so my conclusion on that as a life lesson was that, the people at NASA are, are, are so far in breaking the boundaries of science um, that they're used to dealing with the unknown. And so when you're so used to dealing with the unknown, many discoveries can happen along the way. And so it always has some kind of a spiritual element to it, because when you enter the unknown, you just don't know what door you're opening and where it's going to take you. So really what guides you is faith. And then, yeah, and then I, 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 I built my company around this. We went to 37 countries around the world. Uh, we did uh, very, very well. And then and then we finally got bought out at end of 2017-18. Before we talk about the, the exit, I, I want to understand the, the tenacity involved uh, and the resilience that you needed, because you say you failed 139 times. How long did that take until you got the right product? And what made you keep on going and not give up? Well, at some point, I actually gave up. Um, and it seemed like I had given up, but it was actually space I needed, which I didn't realize there was some time that I needed uh, in between. So it was roughly like six months. So people around me were like, are you not going forward with this? Because we want this to come to life. Like we, we can't wait to see this. And um, if part of that was a huge motivator. But the other part was that I realized that I needed time for my brain to ferment several different things that I had learned that were pushing me to the boundaries. So it's one of those things where it's nature versus nurture, right? Uh, you, there's like there's a balance between the two, but this did take me about four or five years collectively to pull off, and that's like figuring out every single little detail um, from from you know through the 139 prototypes or everything from you know how do we solve you know the penetration part, how do we solve the posture problem part, how do we deal with colors, right? Because there's cosmetic elements to this, um, and we broke barriers in design that have influenced design till today. You know, prior till when we came about, prayer mats were all dark colors, and we didn't know why. So we researched it and we found out that there were dark colors because the the um, the dark dye industry was invented in this part of the world and to keep that industry going carpets by nature were all dark colors so they weren't actually positive colors you were doing a positive thing but they weren't positive colors they were more you know darker kind of uh, i don't want to say negative but they were darker colors right so it surprised us because 
you know, we looked at the psychology of spirituality and a, and a spiritual product very closely. Everything from the shapes to the colors to the design to the size. Um, you know, we initially when we had the product, it had no border. People felt scared. When we added a border, people felt safe. It was just a drawing. That's all it was. Um, you know, when we used a, a flower in the design, we used the lotus because it has no origin. You cannot trace it back to a culture or uh, any kind of spirituality. It, it kind of flows across everybody. Uh, when we used the, the patterns, we used something called infinity. Infinity was invented by uh, old Muslim designers. It was founded as a philosophy where they would drop a, a rock into the water and they say, how many waves would actually come out if we drop the rock into the water? And the conclusion was it was infinity. You just couldn't see all the waves come out. But in the process, it, it created some kind of a serenity in, in, in the actual process. And so this became adapted in early stage uh, Islamic design, which you don't see much today. So we took that and, and put it into the design because it made people feel serenity and, and tranquility uh, on, on the actual product. So how, how long did it take from kind of the first design until launch? Oh, five years. Like, like it took about four or five years. I, I, I mean, it just reached almost two, five years total to do all of that. So this actually goes against a lot of the advice that startups are given now, which is, you know, you need the minimal viable product, the MVP, just go to market quickly and then you adjust um, with market feedback. Why did you not go down that route? Well, for first off, I'm, I'm disrupting a 1400 year old industry. Nobody tomorrow is going to come and compete with me immediately. It took years for people to catch up with me purely because they didn't understand it and they can copy. So in many ways, strategically, I knew I had time. And, and, and it needed time. With the type of tech that we were using to achieve this kind of result, um, you know, the only thing to speed it up would be more money. And unfortunately in this region, nobody really invests in R&D. I'll just tell you that point blank. Um, the person who, in who invested was me. <laughs> uh, I put my own money and, and, and then I, I got some other money from other people around me at that time who knew that this was gonna go somewhere and wanted to be in it at, at, at that level. And they knew that there's, there's, see R&D requires patience and a lot of effort. And you need to have an ecosystem around you that understands that, which unfortunately the MENA region doesn't exist. It may work in different lighter forms in different industries, but with what we were doing, it did not. Um, so that meant I had to be in many places at once uh, in, in the US, Canada, I Asia, um, in places where these materials existed and the skill set for me to work with and the materials and the tools that just don't exist here. I had to go find and, and develop the supply chain. I had to develop the supply chain as well. I had to develop the productivity product, production lines that were unique to it. Um, this isn't like, um, you know, producing like a mug. How much money was spent on developing the, the Times 5, Matt? Yeah, so it roughly took about $700,000 uh, collectively from end to end. Um, and that's being very, that's why it took time. So if I had like three times that amount of money, I probably could have done it three times faster, literally. I mean, I'm just putting it onto like a linear measurement here. But yeah. Where did you launch? Where in the world? Uh, what was that process like? Well, we launched in Dubai. So, 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 so leave the R&D aside. Um, the best market for us to launch in was Dubai. And, and in the short term, that was actually a very good decision for us. Uh, so because Dubai is very close to the key markets that we need and because of its logistical background, um, it played a really fundamental role in our ability to grow um, purely as a place for logistics uh, and, and marketing it worked out very, very well for us. Um, and then what happened once you decided to exit? 
And why did you exit? So, so we had raised uh, quite a bit of money to get to the point we were to hit those 37 markets. And then when we came to scale, um, you know, I spent about two years raising money. Actually, it was a bit more than that. Uh, I talked to about 218 investors in the region and um, it, it, didn't, it didn't work. Um, it was disappointing in many ways. And then I learned a very hard lesson that uh, I was talking to the wrong type of investors in the wrong region. I should have been in other uh, other places who who understood R&D, understood production, understood the idea of international scaling. So we had things that would we call monster markets. So monster markets were things like Turkey, Indonesia and China. And uh, so in this region, it was kind of like, oh, okay, that sounds really far-fetched. Like we want something that's like really nearby. Although they would talk to you like they have the capability to work in those countries, but they don't. And so what happened is we found the bridge very, like I'm talking realities. This is not theory, which you read in, uh, in the newspaper about how great everything is. This is the, the realities of where we stand. And then um, I was in Canada at that time. And in 15 days, uh, you know, a, a, a fund had shown an interest in our intellectual property, not our business. So the intellectual property that we developed had become is, is very valuable because the intellectual property we developed with these materials and the structures that we had, we were experimenting in things like how to build uh, seats for high performance vehicles that can that can go like 300 you know kilometers or more. We were building uh, for air, uh, fighter jets for airplanes, you know, regular airplanes. So we were looking even at mattresses like we were looking at other adjacent industries where we can take our tech and apply it. Not, not just where we had the most passion about, which is obviously the spiritual space, which is where we were. So in this region, they didn't, they didn't get it, right? We were talking about like, we can move into these adjacent industries through licensing, uh, but this fund um, understood it and uh, they paid. <laughs> it's just that simple. They wrote us a check. Uh, I spent a little bit of time with them for tr transferring things over. And then I became a free agent again, deciding what I wanted to do next. So what happened after you exited and, and what are you doing now? Well, what happened after is uh, there was a few interesting things. So, so when I had to, make a, had to make a call to NASA because obviously our agreement is not transferable to those who have acquired the intellectual property and, and, and the business. I called NASA up and I said, hey, like we're no longer friends <laughs> in a nice way. They said, no, that's not true. And, you know, we were saddened and all that. Uh, about like six, eight months later, um, I, I got a surprise. Uh, they appointed me as a judge at the Space Technology Hall of Fame. And um, essentially the reason behind it was um, there was something very unique about us as a space tech company. We were able to become profitable in 18 months. Most space tech companies do not have a, a time frame to commercialize like that. Uh, so I spent time with other space tech companies how to do that. And so they said, well, we'd like you as a judge. You work with seven companies every year. Um, these are the best of the best. And we want you to work with them to basically accelerate their ability to commercialize their technology. And that's what I do. I mean, that's what I do today. I, I've written two books. Uh, one has become a bestseller. I wrote it about uh, a year ago, uh, Ready, Set, Growth Hack. So that's done very well. Um, I lay out a blueprint that, that teaches people how to develop um, a company designed to be a exponential, uh, to grow exponentially. And the second book I launched in January, which is Growth Thinking, and that is a design system, a lot like design thinking or the business model canvas for growth hackers, um, how to just simplify and visual the ability to create a growth hack. So I've been working with how I've been working to help other companies actually uh, to uh, accelerate their growth. That's that's what I've been doing. If you can just explain a little bit about what growth hacking even is. Sure. So growth hacking is uh, disproportionate results. 
if you want to just make it a very simple definition. And what that means is imagine you put in four units of effort and you get one unit of results, right? And that's what happens to most people. Growth hacking is the process that transforms that, you know, four to one to one to four, meaning one unit of effort, four units of results. So that disproportionate results is what growth hacking is all about. So what I focus on is the process and how to do that. So the process isn't necessarily about technology and tools and automation and integration and scaling. All that stuff is obviously part of the package. One of the biggest misconceptions people have that they think that growth hacking is only for certain type of companies. So they think it's only startups and tech, which is not true, but they happen to be the best at it. So we have about 500 unicorns globally. I think that's the what's been identified till now. Um, unicorns, about 97 to 98% of them are all using growth hacking at the center of their businesses. So they've been the perfect example of how a company takes something very little and turns it into completely disproportionate results. Whereas on the complete opposite of that, Fortune 1000s, about 1.5% of Fortune 1000s are, are restructuring to implement growth hacking as a process as part of their core business. Just to put that in, onto a scale so you can see the difference. How, how do you grow in this way where you put minimal effort to get you know, really high growth rates? Well, it's, a, it's the starting point is mindset, right? So, so it's the way you think about it. That's the starting point. The second part is is the strategy. How how do you actually take your mindset and turn it into something you can do? And then the process, and then the tools, and then the automation and scaling. So, ninety seven to ninety six percent, which is what we've seen. So, I run something called Growth Labs. Growth Labs is a is a AI uh, driven growth platform where we basically uh, plug in data into a framework that helps us shortcut growth. So what that means is like I step into a new organization. I know absolutely nothing how to grow this place and I want to start knowing where to start. So we look at things like how many types of how many how many experiments would be required to get a, a certain ROI. So everything is ROI driven, right? We look at if we did 50 experiments versus 100 experiments, where does the ROI taper off? So we know how many experiments to run that we look at what type of experiments how deep do they go what is the cost per experiment uh, so at, at the center of growth hacking is experimentation the reason being is growth comes from the unknown right so if you knew how to grow which is what everybody says they know why the hell are you not growing right the reason you're not growing is because you don't know what you don't know and that's the idea behind experimentation so when we experiment we identify the areas you don't know, you don't see, and it usually comes from left field. So a good example is times five. Um, it's completely from left field, everything from the industry to the product, to the process, to the implementation of it, to the design of it. It all comes completely from left field. It's an, a complete unknown. And actually, while I was doing that, you know, a lot of people would say, oh, you're such a growth hacker, because at that point, I actually didn't understand growth hacking myself. I was implementing it, but I hadn't coined it or understood it uh, to a point as a formal practice. And so when I was when I sold the company, a lot of people had approached me and said, you, you need to start like something to do with growth because people want to learn these techniques. They want to know how do you how do you take something that's just so so, you know, so small and just explode it like that. And, and that's it. Has the strategies and methods for growth hacking changed since you did it at times five? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's so fast paced. Um, it's quite incredible. So so we have this one chart that I show in many talks I do. So I talk about the evolution of growth hacking. So it starts a code, then goes from code to marketing, then code marketing and function, which is what we call cross-functional growth hacking, which looks at multiple variables in order to grow. 
But the origin of growth hacking starts in a very dark place. Um, you know, it's, we call it you know, black hat activities. So they were doing illegal things, things they shouldn't have been doing. And then as growth hacking had developed, it started to shift towards what we call white hat techniques. So in a talk, people are like, yeah, I Google, you know, growth hacking for LinkedIn. I say, that's good to know. But those would be white hat techniques that everybody knows. So the potency is very low. The highest form of potency is what we call the gray, the gray scale. So it's not breaking the law and it's not every, what everybody knows. It's somewhere in the darker shade of a grayscale where uh, very few people are actually practicing those techniques. So there are small communities where, where people in closed circles do share some very advanced techniques and keep it like that because the more people who know about it, uh, the likelihood of it not working for, for a multitude of reasons. Can you share some of those techniques? Uh, <laughs> that might be a bit difficult. I can get in trouble for doing that. And I'm, I'm, I'm serious because we recently had someone in our community uh, actually disclose a technique that has been used in the community. And then the founder of the company, which his tool was being used, blasted him in public. And, and, then, and then it created havoc throughout the growth hacking community. But what, what kind of things are we talking about? Well, I mean, by the time they're out there, they're already white hat because everybody would know about them. So things like, okay, so I mean, the most classic example is Airbnb, right? With, with what they did with Craigslist. So in the time they did it was black hat, right? That they did shouldn't have happened, right? And it shifted to the gray as it started to become known. And then as everybody knew it, it became a white hat technique. As that became a white hat technique, so if you, if you can explain exactly what they did with Craigslist. What they did is they did parallel listing. So parallel listing is I go to Airbnb, I list my property and it would parallel, like it would basically copy and paste that listing and put it into Craigslist. Then they would take the traffic from Craigslist and bring it directly into Airbnb. So they were basically siphoning traffic directly using the users from Craigslist without them knowing. That's when it was black hat. When they became aware of it, they tried to regulate it and that became grayscale. And then when everybody knew about it, by the time they outlawed it, it became a white hat technique. This happens all the time and in different ways, by the way. So how do you figure out what is the best growth hacking technique for your own specific company or product? A lot of creativity. So this is where I was, I was talking about like experimentation. So we get very creative with the type of experiments we do. So. So boardroom ego is when you get a whole bunch of decision makers together or experts and everybody seems to know the answer, but there's no results or very little results. So growth hacking does exactly the opposite. We usually like what I do is if I was sitting in a boardroom with a bunch of experts, I'd be like, we all need to start with a statement saying, I don't know. Right. It's probably one of the biggest ego killers by saying, I don't know. And, and most growth hackers will tell you that. And I'll tell you from the beginning, I don't know. That's the truth is that I really don't know until we start to experiment and getting very creative because there's no formula that fits everybody. Because most people nowadays are so accustomed to how influencers say, hey, take this turnkey program and get rich quick, right? This is kind of like what everybody's feeling comfortable and likes to pay for. Uh, I don't do that because it's a lie. That's not true. You're not gonna get rich quick and there is no turnaround turnkey program. The reason being, is you need a blueprint that gives you a process how to find your formula. So how you will growth hack your own situation is very different to anybody else. You cannot copy paste and neither can they. So when somebody, you know, when people were copying my product, 
after you know many years, um, my shareholders would come to me like, hey, we need to put in some lawsuits. I said, you don't need to worry. I, I said, they're so far behind that they don't understand what the hell is coming next. In fact, um, you know, it's a it's a form of validation. You know, when we called our law firm with the first kind of legal case that we wanted to pursue, he, he said, congratulations, you're now bona fide success. You know, people only copy success. They don't copy great ideas. And that's the truth of it. This is for the times five months. Exactly. And, and this happens in every business I work in where there's a um, high intensity of intellectual property. Even I'll give you even a better example. You know, the, the I, I, iPod, right? When the iPod first came out and there was like all these copycat iPods. And they, if you notice, they never look this exactly the same. They don't feel exactly the same. They don't even function exactly the same. They're just a, an imitation. They're not exactly the same thing because they, they just couldn't get it right. And so people always believe like um, if something looks the same or exact that it's the same thing, but it's not, right? They don't understand the strategy or what, what happens behind the scenes to make that work. Do you have any other examples of growth hacking techniques that have been used by tech companies over the years? Well, I can tell you some of the things like, like we did at Times 5. Like, like one of the, the things that we did that had changed our results by fourfold uh, overnight was um, we recognized the, the so shortening... I guess that's the best way to put it, but shortening the logistics chain. So there's this perception that when something is spiritual related, that your expectations of customer service go to the floor, right? <laughs> we don't expect very high, you know, they'll be late and it won't be exact. There's just this expectation, which is actually pretty cool because we took it and turned it on its head. And how we did that was we discovered that on, so we're talking in a, in a, in a GCC context, which is where most of our revenue is coming. So as you know, the weekend is Friday, Saturday. So most of our orders were on a Thursday, right? People were placing orders online. By the way, we were, most, we were online, so e-commerce completely. So we can see all the data in real time. So Thursdays is when people would place the most orders. And they would do that because they would expect the product on Sunday, okay? So what we did is we changed our, our logistics format where we would be the last in, first out. Meaning at the end of Thursday, we work with our logistics provider that we'd be the last one in the warehouse to be the first one out the next morning, which is Saturday. So they'd receive it 24 hours before the expected delivery date. But the reason behind it is once they receive it on a Saturday, they're usually with their family. And that is the perfect time for them to refer the product because they've just received it and they're excited to open it. That's when they receive a call from our call center. And we have a very specific script that was designed to stimulate the experience since they're already opening it up before expectation, they got family members around. In that particular hack, we would find four times sales the next week just because of that. I mean, that requires quite an intimate knowledge of the culture of how people are spending their weekends. It's, it's not something that can be replicated or can it be replicated in every single market? Oh, absolutely. Like if you ordered like, you know, like some groceries and that happened, that that wouldn't really, <laughs> it, it wouldn't work the same. If it was electronics, it definitely wouldn't work the same. It was just the idea because Friday people would finish praying and Saturday would be kind of like, you know, the next day after the most spiritual day of the week and people are still with their families. So it was like the perfect alignment of you know, it's kind of the emotional side with the, the, the tactic that we use. So it's so it a combination of understanding several things, but also the data, right? So we knew that that by doing that. You now, another problem we had was that 52% of our customers were gifting the product, right? So we were only getting revenue from the first generation of gifting. So you give it to your friend, boom, that's just one, that's one layer. How did we tap into second and third layer? is once we knew it was a gift, we would offer um, a gift certificate or a gifting card uh, free of charge. 
So there's so there's no there's no barrier in making a decision which would be included in the product so that the person getting the gift would have a nice note from the giftee. What happens in that case is that the giftee would say, I want to do the same for that person or that person. So now we penetrated the 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 second degree of, of gifters. Yeah. So those were some of the, the growth hacks that we implemented. I would have thought that um, if someone had placed an order on Thursday, that perhaps, you know, if you were to receive it on a Friday, that would be a growth hack. I mean, uh, how do you need to kind of change your mindset to understand what is the, the right way to go about things? So our objective was Friday, but the logistics providers at that time didn't do Fridays. Friday delivery is only recently, by the way. It's only in the last year that the logistics providers open up Friday deliveries because of food, not because of any other food, uh, category. So because of noon and Amazon Prime and all these other guys who are becoming extremely competitive, they opened up all, all days of the week. But in those days, uh, you know, and we're talking like to kind of two, 2017 prior, Friday was off limits. Uh, we, we tried, actually. We talked to the, <laughs> you know, can we do Fridays? Like, we're just not set up for it. We, 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 need, we need time off. You know, we're humans as well. So we couldn't argue much with that. Um, plus, there wasn't enough demand on, on e-commerce and, and logistics at that time to open up Fridays. But today's a different story. I'd like to go back to the growth hacking side of things. What what do you have in your new book? So the new book is is a design methodology. So it's a lot like the like I was talking about like the business model canvas or the design uh, thinking, and and the reason behind it was I recognized very early on nobody was kind of doing things in a standard way. People were just hacking. It's it's a big mess. So if I wanted to train somebody completely new or I wanted to communicate with somebody who is an expert in the space, there's no common language for us to speak. <laughs> you see what I mean? So growth thinking solves exactly that problem. So we use a nine symbol system and we have a structured approach with a creative system for design. So the idea behind going, we, we call it uh, from idea to action in a snap. So the way that works is that there's always a challenge between being creative and being structured. So many people will assume it comes back to the same thing you asked me before between, you know, problem solving. So the linear and lateral problem solving. So the lateral side would be the, the creative side, the design side, the, the, the linear side is the structure required in order to execute that particular growth hack. So growth hackers around the world are using this to collaborate with teams, uh, to communicate uh, their specifications, to get others to one person to design and someone to implement it. Um, the other way is for people to practice their different growth ideas and then to test them out and have a way of keeping a log of it. So in the book, you get 20 hacks, you work with the 20, and then there's a learning system, which is called the 1520. 1520 is that the learning per hack, every five are combined into a pattern. And then we take a look at all 20 and identify common patterns that you've learned that could generate new growth hacks. Um, what would be the top tips that you would give to a founder right now who probably has their product, they've just launched? What would be your tip and where they make a start with, with growth hacking? When it comes back, I think, to the boardroom ego, uh, you think you need to start by saying, I don't know. And you need to take that completely fresh perspective to almost everything you do. So if you're building a new marketing campaign, you just start with, I don't know. You're building a new product, I don't know. You're entering a new market, I don't know. <laughs> so is this something that you should apply to every single process? Absolutely, yeah, because you see, there's a psychology behind it. When I start with something and, and I say, I don't know, the only thing left is for me to experiment, right? Uh, because I need to figure out what is it that I should know. Through that process, I'll identify things that nobody else sees. 
um, and that unknown or unseen areas are the, where the real possibilities of growth or solving those problems really are. So after, after I don't know, in every, you know, in the marketing and the product development, what happens when, when you have it and you feel like you're, you're doing okay? How do you go that one step further? What to do next? Yeah. So, so, so next thing, like, like uh, let's go back to the example of the hack at times five, the first one with the logistics. So the way we knew that was if we start with, I don't know. And then we start talking to customers, right? Having conversations with customers and, and more intimate conversations. So this is not about like an interview, like, oh, do you like the product? Did the product? No, this is not what this is about. This is about understanding a, a little bit deeper, the behaviors of the customer. So by understanding that we were able to figure out these solutions. I'll give you another really good one that's recent. Um, with noon, uh, so so in the in the grocery store, sorry, uh, food and groceries. Right, there's a lot of competition. What they've been competing on is changing behavior, actually, and they've been using incentives to do that. So they've been learning through data by implementing new different type of incentives, and these incentives are creating new types of behaviors. And by identifying how to change those behaviors is where they're getting their growth from. So that's a process where you start like, I don't know how these people function, right? Okay, let's experiment with a few different incentives and see, do we change someone's behavior, right? If I was to give you a $50 credit with no terms and conditions, meaning you can spend only 50 and pay nothing and it comes to your house, would you actually use the product, right? First experiment, yes, I would, great. Okay, so if we were to up the incentive and, and start to change it, would you still continue with the same pattern? How would your pattern change? And that's some of the things that they've been experimenting with. I can see it on the other side very clearly. Noon started out with, um, with now now, you could order something for one dirham and there were no delivery fees incurred. Was that a growth hacking method? Yes, it is. In fact, um, I'm glad you point out this is a well-known growth hack. It's a white hack, uh, white hat growth hack that's used around the world. You'll see it actually in many places now that you're aware of it. They say um, they give you a product or something, say start with $1, right? The objective is to get you into the behavior of paying. So it's not about how much you pay. It's the fact that I'm getting you to pay. Once I've got you to pay once, the psychology of getting you to pay multiple times opens up. So rather than me giving it for free, that has no value that has a different behavior or me charging you full price that has a different behavior or me giving you a discount or incentive has another completely different behavior. So the $1 growth hack is being used in services in products um, across the world in every sector. So like, hey, um, you know, subscribe for a dollar. That's it. That's all you got to do. And I, I've got you. That's it. You're, you're, you're in. How, how much of this is purely marketing? I mean, where's the line between growth hacking and, and marketing? We see when well, that's where uh, cross-functional growth hacking comes into place. So when we were talking about some of the other ones, you see that there's psychology that's involved, there's operations that's involved, there's strategy that's involved, there's marketing definitely that's involved, and there's tech that's definitely involved. So so that's why when in the book I describe how cross-functional growth hacking works. So there's very rarely will you see it to be just one thing. So the one dollar thing sounds just like marketing. It's a price adjustment, but there's huge operational implications. There's huge psychological implications. There's huge strategy implications. There's huge huge finance uh, you know uh, implications. I mean, you know, imagine going to a CFO, right? And yeah, we're gonna sell this hundred dollar product for one dollar. Oh yeah, really? We'll be out of business in no time. But you, you start talking about customer acquisition cost and change of behavior you know, that requires some vision, right? And and so there's a financial implication to this as well. So it works across the board. And how crucial is data to growth hacking? Well, as you experiment, you'll always need data. And, and the thing about it, the secret behind it is you don't need actually a lot of data. You just need the right data. 
and and in some cases well and you can read about it's like called the one the star metrics or the one growth metrics they have different names for it but usually it's just one measure right so usually one measure is enough to open up the pandora's box so if you've got that one right measure um then you can start working with like um sub, some subset data and it doesn't have to be that much initially to get you on the path so the reason that we do that okay, so it's a good question the reason we do that is we need signals, right? So if I go invest in a platform where I have like 50 points of data or 150 points of data and I don't know if it works, I've just wasted time and money. But if I have a single indicator that will tell me, okay, there's life down this path, there's potential life, cool. Let me get some sub-indicators into place to determine, okay, since there is some potential here, what's how much potential could there be here? Okay, great. Now that I know that there's a signal and there's some potential here, how do I go to the, to the next level to get more data to understand the behaviors in this space? The reason you do that is when we experiment, you want to be fast, you want to be cheap, you want to be as 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 easy and simple as possible. So this is not like a because when people hear experiment, they're thinking, oh gosh, like this is going to be expensive, this is going to take long, and this is going to be a lot of data. That's not true. That's not what we're looking for. It's got to be fast, simple, and cheap. Because you need to get to an answer as quickly as possible, and you're and you are most likely to fail the first time, and you're supposed to. <laughs> the last point I would leave everybody with is like to write down the statement "I don't know," and just come from a totally fresh perspective, and put yourself in the shoes of a problem solver, not a tech guy or a strategy guy or, or marketing person or whatever it is. Just put yourself as just a straight up problem solver and you start with the I don't know statement and just go from there. Just let it flow. That's great advice. Nada, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks to Nadir and thanks to you for listening. You can listen to all of our podcasts on wonder.com or through your podcast provider.